Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, thank you so much for spending your time here listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. And today I've got a really fascinating discussion for you that I had with none other than Dirk Marling. Now, uh, many of you will probably have heard of Dirk before, uh, although we haven't had him on the podcast. Uh, so, so Dirk is very active within the Stoic community. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him now. Uh, but in this conversation today, we go through all kinds of things Stoicism. So we talk about fate, benevolent, benevolent providence. We talk about the soul. We talk about uh, the theology of Stoicism. We talk about eudaimonia. We talk about uh, artificial intelligence and how that relates. There's so many interesting avenues that we go down in this conversation, so I'm excited to let you guys jump into it. But just so you're aware of who we're talking to, you can find all of his qualifications in the show notes listed there. Uh, But I will tell you that he's a faculty member at the College of Stoic Philosophers, which you can find in the show notes as well. Uh, He's the Professor Emeritus of Informational Sciences at University of Pittsburgh. Uh, He's a licensed psychologist in Germany. He's a certified hang gliding instructor. Uh, He's an officer of the reserve in the uh, German army, uh, among many other things. And it's such an interesting, fascinating person. So we've we've just got such a great conversation here and I'm excited for you guys to get into it. So without any further ado, I present to you my conversation with Dirk Marling. Okay, so Dirk, I just want to thank you so much for uh, for obviously working with me and, and Kai to get this whole uh, interview set up. And and Kai has obviously recommended you wholeheartedly. And anybody who Kai recommends, I immediately want to get on the show because he's an absolute master. Um, but uh, but Dirk, I want to give it over to you at the start and just let you explain to the audience who'll be listening um, who you are, what you do, and how you fit into stoicism. Yeah, I'm a German-American. I've been in the States since uh, 1985. Um, I came to the States uh, for my profession. I did a PhD in computer science and artificial intelligence here. Um, I tried many different spiritual paths. I have a high school. In high school in Germany, they still teach the classics, so we read um, Epictetus and Epicurus. Um, But you don't grab the first thing that comes along. You kind of comparison shop if you're a smart shopper. Um, So I looked into Zen and paganism and things like this, but uh, in the end came back to Hellenistic uh, philosophy and uh, in particular Stoicism Um, and within Stoicism in particular Orthodox or traditional Stoicism, the Stoicism hopefully as the ancients intended it, that looks at all three branches of Stoicism, uh, logic, ethics, and physics, because only together do they make sense. Um, and one supports the other, like your listeners may know of the similes, right? The egg or the city or this, the body. So 
Mm. Uh, that's me in a nutshell. I currently live in the White Mountains of uh, New Hampshire, riding out COVID. Um, and uh, I was for many years CIO in uh, utility power companies, uh, leading the digital revolution and greening up power generation. And now I consult in that arena. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Oh, and I also got. I'm also on the faculty of the College of Stoic Philosophers and and teach yeah. and mentor. And that's it. You know, you're you're actively involved in so many different um, different areas of, of of culture, and 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 you know, this is just one of them. And and, and it's so cool to have you here uh, with your wide range of information that you have to share. And 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 something that I wanted to start off with because today we are obviously planning to discuss uh, fate and benevolent providence. Uh, in Stoicism, which is, you know, unless you actually know to look for it, it, it might pass you by, but it's actually a really important part of Stoicism. And I wanted to start by reading a quote from, from uh, Epictetus. Uh, this is from, from uh, the second book uh, in his uh, discourses, uh, number 14, uh, to Nasso. Um, and and I, I'd love to start here because he kind of asks, you know, well, well, shouldn't we define the terms first? So he says, philosophers say that the first thing to learn is that God exists, that he governs the world, uh, that we cannot keep our actions secret, that even our thoughts and inclinations are known to him. The next thing to learn about is the divine nature, because uh, we will have to imitate the gods if we intend to obey them and win their favor. And then he says, if the divine nature is trustworthy, then we should be trustworthy. If it is free, then we should be free. Likewise, if it is benevolent and forgiving, all our thoughts and behavior should be shaped by the divine model. And this is the thing that I'm really interested in. So where to begin? Because he's obviously said the first place you start, know that you know God basically shapes everything. And that's obviously a big debate as well. But then he says, so where to begin? If you are prepared for it, I would say that you need to begin by understanding the meaning of words. So now that Epictetus has kind of set that up for us, let's understand the meaning of these words. What is benevolent providence? What is fate? And in particular to the Stoics, but then also just generally for people. Yeah, I think the biggest rub looking at Facebook lists or even published authors uh, is that we moderns or people growing up in the Western, the Judeo-Christian world, hear the word God, and whether we want to or not, right, the images of paintings we have seen in, in churches jump to mind where there's a bearded white man with a halo sitting on a throne on a cloud. It's very hard to get rid of that image. Um, the Stoics have many names for the divine or the active principle, Numa, Zeus, um, and they predate our ac academic philosophy. So you also can't put them, are they pantheistic? Are they deists? Are they pandeists? Well, you'll find all elements thereof, and uh, some of them look more monotheistic, like Epicurus, others look more pantheistic. But in the end, you got to dig into it and understand how they viewed the cosmos and how they viewed things working, right? So if you go back to the basic principles of, of Stoic physics, then you have the passive principle, matter, and you have the active principle, 
which is consciousness, creative fire, a divine force. In German, we call it Weltseele, right? The soul of the world. So it's not some deity that is out there and is writing a script and keeping tabs of, you know, if you follow the commandments or not. And in the end, there's nothing better to do than to grab you and push you into pit. No, the cosmos unfolds. It's deterministic. So there is an intelligence behind it, but the intelligence is contained in itself, which is another thing that's very hard to get your head around, right? Mm. Um, with us, right, your and my consciousness, intelligence, cognitive functions are contained within us, and then we're contained in a larger world. If you look at the whole consciousness, it's contained in itself, so it probably works a little differently. Mm. Um, and we see, if we take this, this look of the divine and the creative forth and things marching forward in a teleological way towards a goal, right? Just like an acorn marches forward to becoming an oak tree. Um, so if you, if you see that, then all of a sudden things start making a lot more sense and you don't need a, a jealous anthropomorphic god that enforces commandments and and wants to be worshipped hmm yeah so so how do, how do you see providence then because uh, because it's kind of like um it's almost as if it's like the speaking forth of wisdom right like it, it's it's a caring kind of wisdom that you can receive but uh, how, how do these stoics kind of interpret that when it comes to uh god or the universe or nature whatever you call it do, do they believe that, and, and, and in a sense, do you believe that that uh, there is a connection there that we can grab or is it just a kind of stagnant thing that is just happening and sometimes we get it, sometimes not? Yeah, in, interesting question, right? So I am careful with the word believe because that yeah, believe, is very yeah. closely tied to to revealed religions right here's a book mm. i got it from up high i wrote it all down then the angel took it away but thank goodness i have a copy and i believe in that so the the wonderful thing about stoic physics and metaphysics and theology is that there is no revelation there is no holy book nothing was ever handed down right mm. it's not that zeno went to mount olympus and all of a sudden he came back and knew what was happening um, but rather, it's if you apply rational thought to the problem of, well, the big questions in life, where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? Right? So imagine all these ancient philosophers sitting around drinking wine and eating olives and watching the sunset and rationally trying to peel things back. Take, mm. for example, you know, they did speculative science, which we kind of sneer at because we feel so powerful with our experimental science. Well, these guys 2000 years ago, they didn't have an electron accelerator and a microscope. And they kind of thought, well, they were very good at developing hypotheses, which we later then verified, right? Like mm. Democritus with the atoms and all that kind of stuff. So, or take the shape of the earth, right? Many people thinking it's a, it's a plate and or a round disc and they're like, well, uh, the most perfect is the sphere. Oh, it's most likely a sphere. So 
the same for all these metaphysical things, right? They, they try to see how far can rational thought get you. Um, and today we would label it probably determinism, right? Because A leads to B and B leads to C. And if you dig into uh, Stoic physics, um, you see that they have a very complex way to talk about determinism. There's multiple causes, antecedent causes, sustaining causes. So the cosmos, the overall intelligence, has basically set things up so that they unfold, just like the acorn growing into an oak tree, in a great fashion where one thing leads to another or actually multiple a web of things, multiple things lead to multiple things. And it's not hard determinism, which is the beauty and even harder to understand, but it's soft determinism. So the divine fire that makes all this happen and drives all this forward, there's a spark of it in your and my soul. So we're part of it. And that, I think it's called esposmatic spark allows us to have free will. So now you mm -hmm. have soft determinism on the one hand, right? Things just happen. You don't need to do anything, but you also have free will, which leads to what the Stoics call co-fated actions um, and, and thus creates a, what philosophers these days call con compatibilism. Um, I got my head around this by thinking of fate is like a river, right? Mm -hmm. It's just water flowing down the river and it, it meanders. You cannot change the course of the river. You cannot change how fast and where it goes. It's predetermined and uh, it's the best possible way for that river to go. But you sit in a little kayak in that river and you have your free will, right? You're part of that river. And you can try paddling up against that river. It, it won't really help much because you'll run out of power. And so you mm. let yourself float. But you can decide if you go, you know, through the rapids or through the shallow waters on the left or if you hook up with another kayaker um, who has been put in that river kind of at the same time in the same place as you are. So that, that simile helps me think about fate things moving forward in the best fashion, me and my humans around me, my wife, my kids, my co-workers, um, we are all in that river together. We all make our decisions, but in a way it's predetermined where this go. But it, it's not when I have these discussions and people say, oh, so it's, it's almost like there's a script for you. No, no there isn't. Right. It's like we're not that important that like, again, right, there's this idea of some Abrahamic God sitting down with a quilt writing out a script as to what happens to you. No, it's A leads to B leads to C and you work within it, but it's a framework that's moving forward. So mm -hmm. that's how I interpret that. And that's how I work with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the, the kind of model of like a, a union, you know, of, of, yeah, it's deterministic, but it's also, you can guide it a little bit like you're going down on, on, on a canoe on a river. I like that. And sounds very similar. I can you know tell that you've obviously studied Taoism as well, yeah. you know, cause it sounds similar to that sort of stuff as well. And I even think of um, Alan Watts saying that 
the, the tree is just a way for an acorn to make more acorns. You know, it's like that kind of idea that it's like everything is kind of just flowing around. Everything's just flowing around. Um, and you can kind of see it from all these different angles. Um, yeah. And, and just to be fair, right. Once, once I thought of this, I realized it's not all that different to Chrysippus cart, right. Where the car travels on its way and the dog, you are tied to it and you have a little bit of leash so you can go left or right. You can be dragged or, Right. I, it's just the same as with the kayak. Yeah. It's just a more, more modern, different way. Mm. And, and and I'd love to I'd love to talk about uh, so, sort of universal nature as it pertains to the logos as well, because something that I came to think about at the start of this year, and and I I think that this was the principal observation for me that really led me down the path of trying to understand the theology of Stoicism and just theology in general, even to the point where I'm now really considering applying to do a, you know, a master's in divinity next year or something like that. So I can learn about this sort of stuff because it's so interesting. Um, But the, the principal observation was, okay, well, you look at a lion and a lion isn't perplexed about what its place is in the universe. It doesn't wake up in the morning and think, oh, what should I do today? It just, it does what it does. And it's the same with a tree and it's the same with everything else. It seems except for human beings. We seem very perplexed about what it is that we're here for or, or, or to do. And, and it seems to me like, we wouldn't be the only things within the cosmos that don't have some sort of compass internally that can allow us to move forward with, with, with courage and purpose and meaning. And it seems like to the Stoics, that was universal nature, reason, our spark of divinity, our spark of logos. And I really like the analogy of the flame because it's like, at first we're actually really bad uh, at listening to our conscience, which you might say is the logos, which is the thing that tells you, yeah, you should do that, or you probably shouldn't do that. But if you're willing to actually listen to it and be truthful and actually care about what it would tell you about yourself and and all of your faults and the things that you should change and the things that you should do, uh, you can kind of kindle that spark and turn it into a flame and turn it into a bonfire over time by becoming really good at actually paying attention to what you are, who you are, you know, where you are. Um, it, so my, my question is like Seneca, he would say, for example, uh, universal nature and our individual virtues. Those are the two things that we have, nothing else. So you want to focus on them purely. Is this another example of that kind of union there where you have that connection to the, the divine nature, but you also have your individual virtue, which is your action. And when you pair them together, that's when you start to flow down the river a little bit more effectively. I, I don't know if I would put it that, that way. It, it may actually be, be simpler, right? Mm. Um, where, where I would start, with this topic is by understanding that uh, the Stoics say we are part beast and part God, mm. right? So we have, we have these two, uh, two tendencies and just to, just can... to clarify there. So, so you could even say kind of part matter, part, you know, whatever puts the matter together, right? Like that's, that's those two original kind of, 
Yeah, if you go back to very first principles, right, there's the passive uh, principle in us and there's the active principle. Uh, the Stoics were very almost like Zen masters, right? On the one hand, very mystic. On the other hand, very like carry water, chop wood. Yeah. So they're like, well, you can either live like a pig or you can live like a god, right? Mm. Which one do you choose? Um, and they would say the choices we make um, are based on false, false judgments, right? Because you could easily see Freud come through and the id and the ego and the super ego. And if you look at the platonic view of the soul with the horses and the, uh, the horsemen, the charioteer steering them, you're getting down that road. The beauty about Stoicism is that it's a monistic um, theory, right? There's just one thing. And that means you have judgments, you have a cognitive, uh, a, a cognitive structure, an episteme. And based on that, you make decisions. And it's your decision to live like a pig or to live like a god. And if you think through things and understand things properly, you will pick the path that leads you towards virtue. In other words, to be god-like. Now, we mm. can never fully be there because we're human, right? It's always an unattainable goal that's out there. But um, proper action, katathormata, right? The, the, the proper actions that you take, not just right, but moving forward your virtue is what in the end gives you eudaimonia. So if you have bought into the idea that you want flourishing eudaimonia, as your telos, as your end goal, as your highest good, um, you foster that and build that by building virtue in that. And you build virtue by acting virtuously in every instance there is, not just kind of the big things mm -hmm. where you could launder money, but you don't. No, even small things in, in life, every moment, right? Every moment is a question, an opportunity, grist for the mill, to uh, to to show virtue, um, and and so you really have a an art of life that you're learning. It's like horsemanship or being a shoemaker, right? You learn the art, you learn the technique of being virtuous, and thereby it forms into a habit, and thereby you you march forward and build a proper life. Um, which kind of gets me to one of my pet peeves, which is exercises. People, for some reason, love to do stoic exercises, whether it's showers or, or sleeping on the floor or whatever. Unless you understand how to exercise virtue and unless you build a cognitive structure that enables you to show proper deeds, I don't care if you can take a cold shower for five minutes or 10 minutes, it's not going to make you virtuous. Hmm. Right. So that I think is, is very important to get on this path. And what's also been hovering in this, this in, in the context of, of the questions you had and the discussion we had is you want to build meaning around it. So, um, and I, I got psychological training and I look at what many of the contemporary stoicists do with CBT and Ellis and, and using that in order to use small techniques to help people cope with anxiety or alcoholism or something like that. 
which is a very small part of life, right? I mean, I pity people who have alcoholism or anxiety or whatever it may be, but stoicism is something bigger. It's not just to fix a little hmm. problem in your life. It's in order to help you build a beautiful edifice, a beautiful palace of life. So I think we should look much more, if, if we want to use modern psychology, we should look to Viktor Frankl and, and the search for meaning and find mm. meaning in our lives and use our virtue in order to build meaning for ourselves, mm. for those around us, something we can be proud of, something that endures and something that creates eudaimonia. Mm. So um, that was one of the things I wanted to say. You, you also touched upon something else because when you said, well, there's a, almost like a scala nature, right? A, a ladder scale of going from inert, passive matter to having a little bit of, uh, of active matter, hexes, like a stone, so it hangs mm. together, uh, to having uh, even a little more, so it's, an an it's a plant, to having even more, so it's an animal, all the way to us where we can think, well, you can easily see if you go down that road, again, rational thinking applied to these uh, concepts that, well, maybe there's beings that have even a little more of this active mm. principle than we do, which gets you to the diamond, right? Which, which is not quite a god, but um, I think it was Epictetus, right? He said in, in 114, God put a diamond by your side to watch over you at all times. So, yeah, if you're a modern psychologist, you would say, well, yeah, that's a personification of your consciousness and it's kind of the voice uh, that whispers to, yeah, maybe, right? But mm. maybe it's something more. And mm. that is something interesting to explore, to listen to your diamond, to listen mm. to your consciousness, to help you be more virtuous. Well, well see, I, I think... I think that it's very clear that consciousness is your conscience is something more because I mean, who really understands what the conscience is, who really understands what inspiration is, what insight is. I mean, you know, who can understand why one day you'll get a brilliant idea and you think, man, I should do that idea. And then you don't do anything about it. And then literally like a month later, you see that somebody in America is picking up that idea and doing the exact same thing that you, you never work towards. You know, it's like, there's, there's such interesting, if you're willing to push yourself way beyond the boundaries of what you understand, you see that, okay, like, why do I even imagine for a second that I know more than everything in the universe? Like there's obviously uh, so much more that we don't understand. And our understanding is like a pinprick in, in the expanse of the universe. And that's what stoicism has done for me in many ways is it's just crushed me because it said, you don't understand how big and how, incredible everything is so pay attention because you don't know anything yeah. um yeah. now i i want to i want to define some things so uh you know we, we keep on going through obviously really good terms like virtue like the soul uh diamonds uh daemons uh virtue is one of the main reasons why i kind of jumped back into the podcast this year because i really wanted to figure out okay like 
do I even know what virtue is? Uh, do I know where it comes from? Do I know how you can actually think about virtue? Uh, for yourself, how do you think about virtue in terms of how you actually learn what it is and what you should do? Because that's not exactly clear. Yeah. So to me, in the end, and this may be a little psychological show, the cognitive psychologist, it, it is a... Uh, it's a character trait or a habit. That's what it becomes. That's how it emanates. That's how it shows. Um, but I see a very simple diagram that takes the three stoic disciplines, logic, physics, discipline of desire and aversion and action, and almost puts it into a uh, human information processing um, model right because you're you're getting uh, information stimuli from the world um so the stoics are not different than uh, than pavlov's dog or anything else they all understood it starts with getting an uh, a stimulus from the world or some stimuli appropriate or receptive like you feel your tummy is turning or you have a headache or something like mm. that but you have a stimulus and they said, well, you basically have a chance there to stop and take the stimulus and look at it and say, you know, do I assent to you or not? Most vivid example is the wave with the seafarer where it's like, oh, my God, there's a wave. It's going to crash on the boat. We're all going to die. How horrible. Oh, it washed over. right? Mm. So, no, it's just a wave. Right. But you can assent to it or not. Um and it's not that this happened every once in the blue moon, right? As we're doing this, you see me, you hear me, but you also smell the room around you. You keep an eye on the door to see if the cat's coming in. So there's a bazillion of these things coming in. And it's not like we have the luxury of wait, fantasy, let me look at you, right? So they're coming. Mm. We're almost subconsciously processing these things thousands at a time within microseconds. And they kind of settle down as we agree to them and they form our knowledge structure, right? Long-term memory. So as a psychologist, I would say we hold this uh, impression in short-term memory. We quickly think about it like, yeah, yeah, nothing to worry about. Car coming from that side, nah, car, right? No problem. But all these learnings build our knowledge structure and some of them are wrong. Hmm. Um, and that's what we got to fix. That's why the Stoics say we got to fix wrong judgments. Uh, that that uh, the pathe, the strong emotions, are only wrong judgments. So that's how they form. That is the discipline of logic. It's about epistemology. How do we build up our knowledge structure? How do we acquire knowledge? How do we fix wrong judgments? And one of the things we got to learn about is virtue. What is virtue? So that's why we read books about virtuous men and women. That's why we go and watch theater plays and see Achilles succeed or Odysseus persevere or things of that nature, right? So we got to learn what a virtue is before we can practice it. Just mm. like I got to learn the violin before I can play the Brandenburg Concerto. Mm. So we basically learn these things on a uh, what, what psychologists would call declarative basis. We can recite it, but we can't do it. 
So now we slowly got to put these things into practice. And that's where the habituation, the character formation, uh, the turning it into a constant deposition comes in. Um, and that's where, think of it almost as a second column in your soul, where, where you move from logic to physics uh, because you now have desires and aversions, right? So you have your knowledge structure. That's basically your dictionary. Um, but now you can pick a couple of things that you really want to go after that motivate you hmm. or that make you stay away from things. They may be potato chips or they may be a beautiful woman or they may be a fast car or they may be becoming a priest or whatever it is. But you pick those things. And, and at that stage, so this logic here boom you learn some things you decide or you put in there what what the the virtues are you got to decide that you want to be virtuous that's got to be mm. one of your desires if you don't desire to be virtuous right you can be a mafia boss and and recite the virtues but you go out and then kill people and extort them and don't act mm. that way anyways and and funny thing is that many academics are that way because they can give you chapter and verse on all this thing, but they behave in a very different way. So, so now you've picked these things, and another thing happens in that second compartment, in that, that physics compartment, which is your desires and aversions should be in unison with what the director of the universe has in mind right mm -hmm. so if you're if you're an acorn you know don't have the idea to become a maple tree won't won't come out well mm -hmm. um you know if you're living in 21st century america don't try to be a 9th century centurion doesn't work mm -hmm. out well so that, that's that's another example of where you frequently see in public discussion, what do they mean by live according to nature? Hmm. Well, they mean make your desires and aversions congruent with the way things go. Don't paddle against the stream. You can go a little more to the left and a little more to the right and kind of hold up for your girlfriend to catch up or whatever. But, you know, don't do something stupid. Don't turn the kayak around and go underwater. It won't work. Hmm. So, so now you have decided that these virtues you've learned about, you want to enact them, and now you need practice runs, right? You need to actually do this, like learning the violin. You need to learn scales, and you need to learn bowing technique, and all sorts of things. Um, so you need to make decisions to act. So you're forming an impulse, and now we've entered the third realm, the realm of action. So based on your knowledge, with the desire to do something, you now form an impulse to actually make something happen, mm. which is in accordance with the universe. And so God will, whatever you do then, may come out just right. right? Mm. Because we all understand it's co-fated. So you're, you're not completely in control of what happens out there. The only thing you're in control of are those three things I talked about. Perception, building your knowledge, picking your desires and diversions, and then picking what you want to do. From then on, you enter the real world again, and hey, it's fair game, buddy.
Mm, yeah. Yeah. You've, you like Pinocchio, you've kind of, you've, you've left the realm of being a puppet and now you're, you know, <laughs> you're ready to start acting like a real human yep. boy. Um, and, uh, this idea of living in in agreement with nature has also been something that I've been really uh, trying to wrestle with this year. But I think that Nietzsche uh, puts forward a really good argument uh, that can really make you think about uh, exactly what the Stoics thought and, and exactly what you think about it as well. And he kind of suggests, well, okay, well, if you're just going to say to me, well, um, you know, the whole world is just one working order and it's, it's, you're a part of this, um, this, this working order and we should live in agreement with nature. Well, I mean, no matter what you do, it is living in agreement with nature because you are nature and you can't take you out of nature. So if, if, if you could take you out of nature, then of course you could live in agreement with nature because then you could get back into it. But, uh, how do you kind of reconcile that kind of argument against, against this living in agreement with nature? Because it seems to me to be pretty reasonable, but um, on the same point, it seems like the soft determinism might be sort of the answer to that Um, in, in that, like we're kind of separated in that we can become more like the animals, but you know, you can kind of get back into it. I, I don't know. How do you think about that? Yeah, I've heard that argument a couple of times, and I think there's a logical error in that line of reasoning, right? It's mm. because we are part of nature, everything we do, as stupid as it may be, therefore is natural. Um, no, it isn't, right? You were given by Zeus a spark of divine nature in order to have a free will. Mm. So the course of the river, nature, providence, destiny, is running its way and it's going toward the sea and you can either align your actions with that and live a blissful life or you can decide that no right because you have the power you're given this spark so you can make your own decisions um the river will keep flowing right so you decide that no i, I want to go up river Mm. absolutely unnatural not what was planned right so you paddle you exhaust yourself you're not getting anywhere uh, the other kayakers who come down you ram them you hurt them um so you have made a decision that goes against the flow of things against uh, the the way that the cosmos unfolds you have that power uh, you will not change the way that nature goes right it's it's going to keep going that way mm. um and and in the end you've lived a miserable life right mm. and it's interesting when you take this and you know you and me we both will be forgotten a few years after we die but take big people in history take stalin right or or mao or pol pot right people who killed millions and had influence on millions of lives and you think, well, did they change history? Did they maybe mm. change the course of this river? Or was it their role to do this? Was this fated to be? Well, yeah. I mean, the big things, the big events in, in history are fated to be. So um, I, I guess, right? But it's, it's interesting to take this, this concept and, and really think through it. 
not just from our like, well, a little self-help, right? I want to improve myself. It's like, well, mm. how'd that work out for Pol Pot? <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. And and, 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 and that's he, an... Sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. Well, well, that's another interesting thing that you think about as well, because I mean, all of the Stoics at one point or another said, you know, don't worry about lasting reputation because it just doesn't matter. And that's that's true if you have like a very kind of infinite eternal perspective it's like in a million years from now yeah maybe all of marcus aurelius's records are destroyed nobody knows about him um and uh, hey you look at the world the way that the world's going at the moment who knows maybe it'll be sooner that rather than later that those records are destroyed but 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 um you know on the other hand you think well we do remember marcus aurelius and he has really shaped the course of history through his words. Um, so, so how do you think about that? How do you think about reputation? I know you don't really focus on like, I want to build a reputation, but how do you think about leaving a legacy, leaving kind of, yeah, you're, you're part of the flowing river. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a good thing to do. It goes back with uh, Frankel and having a meaning in life, right? You want to do something meaningful. If you don't do anything meaningful, you're probably depressed and uh, not going to live a good life. Um, I, I think it's always helpful to not view stoicism in isolation in this, but kind of get the grasp of the society and, and the mindset in yeah. which they operated, where some things were taken for granted. And I personally found that uh, when it comes to questions like this, the uh, Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle is a great way to look at this, right? Because Aristotle is a lot more accessible than the, the Zen-type teachings of Stoicism, right? Where it says, hey, slave, do this, or you can't step in mm. the same river twice, good old Heraclitus, uh, the, the grand old, the, the, the pre-Stoic. Uh, so Aristotle basically says, well, yeah, you need all those virtues, but hey, a little bit of luck and money don't hurt. <laughs> right? mm. yeah. um, and when you, when you read where he says, which, which virtues should you develop? Well, of course, he comes up with a big four. Um, he kind of groups them a little differently, but um, he then has others, right? So he says, you should be frugal. And mm. you should look for small honors and big honors, right? Because back then, you know, the people who were leading cities and states and nations and armies were studying this stuff. So if you're successful, you know, hey, you know, donate a monument, fund a university. None of us is probably going to do that. But that is kind of the mindset where the Stoics stood and would have said with Aristotle, it's like, well, yeah, that's great, but you don't really need this to be, you know, for eudaimonia if you don't donate a temple. No, but they kind of like agree that, yeah, it's usually a good thing, a preferable indifferent to uh, do something meaningful, move your community forward, take the skills that Zeus gave you and develop them to do something with it in the world rather than sit on the couch and eat pizza and drink beer. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's perfectly fair. And I, I really like that approach. I, I do really like Aristotle's approach actually, which is, is kind of, 
you know, a, a little bit broader uh, than the Stoics in terms of what is is looked upon with, with as a, as an opportunity for virtue. You know, because I kind of think that culture is one of the core ways that you can practice virtue. You know, and I think that um, that in, in the Stoic community we we don't often enough uh, see that as the case. It's like, you know, I've got a piano here. And this piano is is a cultural entity, you know, in itself. And and I sit down at it and I think at every level on this piano, there's a right and a wrong way of doing things. And when you practice the right way of doing things on this piano, what you create is something just magnificent. And and there's absolutely no limit to how virtuous you can be on a piano because, you know, people just keep on getting better and better and better and creating just incredible exquisite art out of this one instrument. And that's a way that culture has given us a way to practice virtue. Um, and it's funny, you know, you think about uh, these philosophers back in Greece who would say, you know, musicians, you, you have tuned your instruments, but you haven't tuned your mind, you know, <laughs> like, like, but I, I see culture and instruments and music and stuff like that as a way to tune your mind because it gets you to see, Oh, Okay. I'm just an idiot and I have no idea how to play this. But if I practice virtue, you know, you can create something beautiful. And, and don't you think it's the same for your life? Because virtue is an infinite concept. It's like, no matter what you do and how good you do it, there's always something that you can do that's better. And so in that way, it's hard to get your head around virtue, but don't you think that for your life, it's almost a practice of how good can I make this? You know, like, I, I don't know the limits. How good can I actually make this? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And, uh, you know, just as a little side note, it's not a very popular view these days, right? Because anything goes, right? Yeah. Who, who says that my three-year-old who comes running up to your piano and keeps banging around it, hey, the kid's expressing himself. It's brilliant, right? I mean, this is primordial. No, it's not. Right, the kid doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Right? Yeah. Um, so no, it's deconstructionism and anything goes um, does not go well with virtue ethics. Um, and I think there's a reason that that we see this upswing in stoicism and and other movements of that kind where people are hungry for meaning and they're hungry for keep building things rather than tearing down things even though i guess in particular in the states we've swung back to tearing down things at the moment but mm. um it'll 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 go away um so yes i think in particular for you're you're only responsible for yourself and and your job is to make you into the best person you know be all you can be um and that means mind body and soul um and it means you're going to fail and so you're going to fall off the horse and you're going to get back up again and you're never going to reach it the carrot's always going to be dangling in front of you you got to realize that you will not be the sage i will not be the sage right we just can't um even if we're one centimeter under the surface of the ocean we're still drowning but mm. we make progress going upwards yeah yeah and, and that's why i love epictetus's kind of strategy there which is self scrutiny but also self-kindness you know i think that's so important for people to just to understand that 
no matter how much you try to be virtuous, there's always going to be so much that you, that you haven't done yet that, that would be so much better, but you need to be kind to yourself and recognize that this is all a, a lifelong process, you know, and that's, that's kind of what we're talking it, about here, building the process yeah. of your life, right? It, it's that and not rubbing it into other people's faces too. Mm. And look how virtuous mm. <laughs> I'm more virtuous than you are, right? Don't tell anybody that you're studying philosophy. Don't tell anybody that you're on this journey. You will be laughed at for whatever reason, right? Either mm. because they think they're better at it or they think that you're on a fool's errand or whatever it may be. It's for yourself and either it works for yourself or it doesn't, but you don't need the appreciation of others around you mm. in doing that. Hard thing to do, right? Because anything we do, we usually get graded on it and get rewarded or punished for it. And so we do this really just for ourselves. Well, not really just for, really for our soul, right? Mm. Which is another thing that in, in modern day and age, we haven't talked much about it, but it falls into the same category as God or the diamond, or it's one of these things that's a very, very helpful construct. Um, and, and people say, well, show me, where is it? Mm -hmm. right? Jesus Christ, it's a complex of functions, right? Do you think psychology is studying like a little noopsie of, of neurons in the brain? No, it's, it, it emanates somewhere, brain function, cardiovascular system, central nervous system, autonomous nervous system. You can find physiological, but it doesn't help. We're interested in the in the phenomena and for some reason people have become so materialist that that studying phenomena dissociated from some material element seems dubious mm. yet i think those concepts like the soul are, are very helpful right mm. because that's what we're talking about we're, we're, we're talking about uh, polishing our soul basically Hmm. And, and don't, don't, don't you think that the soul is, um, yeah, this is, this is such an interest, such interesting stuff to talk about because I agree that it, it's, it's overlooked far too often these days. And I overlooked it for most of my life as well. I mean, and, and now I've only really started to come back and try to understand this stuff, but I like the way that Marcus Aurelius puts it. He says, uh, the soul is a dream and mist and the body is a river. Right. Um, and, and that kind of, that kind of really just boggles my mind, like trying to think about what he meant and how he felt, you know, because the way that I see it is like, if you go down to the very basic elements of, of who you are, which is just a whole bunch of compacted atoms together making you, and then you go even further, it's like, if you think that all you are is the things that you know about, then I mean, you know, have fun with that because you're so much more than the things you know about because you eat an apple and you don't make that apple turn into your body. Your body turns that apple into your body and, and the functions turn that apple into your body and you don't have anything to do with it other than you've put it in your mouth, you know? And, and then if you go even deeper and deeper, it's like, what's beyond atoms, what's beyond quarks what's the finest substance that exists and you think wow we are just we're just a dream 
walking through this mist of information. Every breath we take is more information that interacts with the soul of our body, the, the functions of our body, and then allows us to have that information and move forward. And um, it's, it's such an interesting way to think about it, but how do you explain the soul to somebody in terms of how, like, how would you explain the soul to somebody who's just purely materialistic in their worldview? Yeah, I think I'd start out as a, as an experimental psychologist, right? Because Mm -hmm. we're talking about functions and for some reason, people always want to talk about physiology. Uh, So you got to throw physiology out of the window and look at things like, you know, your memory span. I, I don't care how you bring it about, but it is clearly a cognitive function that you have. What are your earliest memory? Showing them um, these perceptual puzzles where there's like an arrow that's like this and the illusions, right, all of a sudden. So there's a ton of very clear sensation and perception things that go on. Um, and And you have thousands of experiments. You go into how people think, problem-solving, long-term memory, short-term memory, um, and and just look at the more um, cognitive, rational, accepted ways psychology does experiments and and looks at the mind um, to a detriment somehow of where it originally started in the 19th century, which was a lot more soul-based, which gets at the phenomenon of what what is cognition, right? So in mm. academic psychology, we, we understand a lot about individual functions, but we've lost sight of where and how it, it, it all comes about, which is somewhat left to metaphysics. Um, and it goes points right back to where the Stoics were with Numa and, and Logos, So there's a consciousness that pervades everything, which brings this about. And we study those phenomena, but that consciousness is bigger than us. Um, It's sort of you're a very strong material, uh, the materialist, you know, explain this, your body renews every seven years. So Mm -hmm. after seven years, I don't find an atom that's the same as it was seven years ago. How can you be the same person? How can you have the same memories? How can you have the same dispositions and likes and you still don't want to eat gherkins? And, you know, it's it's all that kind of stuff. So your soul, which the Stoics define as that eight-part thing, which is the, the five senses, um, speech, reproduction, and your hegemonicon, so we're really interested mostly in the hegemonicon, but all other parts are soul functions too. And we talked about it earlier when we talked about sensation, perception, and building that knowledge structure, which the Stoics would put in the soul. So a lot of what the Stoics label the soul today, we would call cognitive functions, uh, but they also go to the part of what is consciousness even though i guess there isn't even a greek word for it right so it goes a little beyond the way the hellenistic world thought about these things but clearly they keep saying that there is you know and it inspired the bible logos right it it doesn't read in greek in the beginning there was god and the word was with god and god was the word Mm. it said in the beginning there was logos there was 
meaning, the same logos Frankel talks about in logotherapy. So in the beginning, there was consciousness, awareness, brightness, light, the active principle, and it permeated everything and thereby created everything. So that's how I would go, right? From a very simple mm. memory experiment all the way down to where, where does it come from, right? Yeah. The, the, and that sort of stuff is mind-boggling because if you think about it, if you can even wrap your head around the idea, just like 0.1% of the idea of not having words and not having anything to describe anything, it's like, wow, okay, that that is the start of everything. It's like it, without words, I don't see anything, I don't feel anything, I don't understand anything. Um, so is there anything there? <laughs> like, that's the question. It's like before words, is there anything? So yeah, focus on and And you even think about this, like what's the power of learning a new word? Like a new word allows you to see something that you didn't see before. It literally is like a light in your mind, in your soul, in your body that allows you to now have some new cognitive process that, that gets you closer to understanding of the world. And that's why, I mean, in Western culture, you know, you, and in many cultures, you see that um, the, the focus is on the individual to become a powerhouse of speech and knowledge and, and wisdom. Because if you can have wisdom, if you can have a, a better vocabulary and a more broadened vocabulary, you can just be so powerful because, because you can see so much more, right? And that's really what we're all trying to do here. We're trying to see things that, that we couldn't see before. Um, and that's the power of conversing. That's the power of conversation. Um, and, and I want to ask you as well, because Dirk, you've, you've also done a lot of research into artificial intelligence, that sort of stuff. How has your knowledge of artificial intelligence and psychology, uh, interacted with your philosophy like has has artificial intelligence taught you anything about your philosophy or otherwise philosophy about about ai yeah it certainly has right so the model i described earlier which i called human information processing is definitely based on um, ai trying to mimic what we know about human information processing mm. um and the just like math was a, a language for physics to express gravity or electromechanics or things of that nature a running computer simulation is a great way to test your theories that you have about cognition um so my abbreviated example of perception building a knowledge structure picking aversions and desires leading to a certain level of uh, desire for action and impulse is is heavily influenced by um, building artificial intelligence programs um, that mimic certain human cognitive functions um, even even including those where we make wrong decisions, right? Because we want to understand where do wrong decisions come from. So if we have a model of how you integrate things wrong or fall for uh, perceptual puzzles or things like that, um, you, you now can feed it different information and and see how the model evolves. Um, and and it's. For me, it, it's diagrammatic. I'm a, I'm a visual person, so I all PowerPoint on how I view this and think uh, 
how these diagrams run into each other, but it's it's a nice way to integrate things without having to read through a thousand pages. And I don't know why it's why it isn't done more often. Well, I guess the ancients just used words because they were speaking in dialogue, um, social um, settings. Um, but modern philosophy, I mean, this, right, just this idea of sensation coming in, going through a yes-no filter of agreement, building up a solid structure of epistemic knowledge, moving over energy to act that builds on increasing level you can put a number like it's it gets nerdy but that's what ai is so you know if, if you want to say well so the four virtues you basically learn about them and then you start habituating them so how strong mm. is that habit on a scale of one to ten every little bit you do adds to it up there you didn't do it well that subtracts you know a minor fraction you're back to 3.7 on dikaiosune on uh, on on justice um so yes it it clearly helped me put it into that language which aligns a couple of things and makes cross connections a lot simpler like just like this idea of virtues being habits that grow that you can put a numerical number to that that start as what psychologists would call declarative knowledge Right, so I can explain to you how to wear a necktie, hmm. which doesn't do a thing for you until you do it, and then you get better at it, and all of a sudden you know how to do a necktie. Um, so you turn declarative knowledge and instruction into actual motor memory and feeling and how it should look, and then you get a master at it. So hmm. all those types of things, how learning happens, how perceptions happen, how we build declarative knowledge base, epistemic knowledge base, remembering things. Um, and, and it allows you to kind of pull things out and look at them like um, is the, the, the theory of emotions, right? Is it really only wrong judgments? Or is it like Aristotle or Plato would say you have different... Uh, you have different drives in you, one for sex and one for recognition, and they compete with each other. And, well, you've now left the stoic idea of it's all one thing and the hegemonicon decides. But no, you have two, three horses that are running against each other. And, um, well, so you look at that from like, well, how would I model that in an AI program, right? That mm. can show all of a sudden a wrong emotion or a strong emotion or where you know the, the the go for the pizza and not for the healthy snack wins out mm. so yeah. it, it gives you a vocabulary and a way to dissect these things that goes beyond just words yeah yeah i love that and it seems it seems like what you're doing is is finding patterns in human thought and action, right? Like it finding the, like the direct links between how we take the potential of information and turn it into something, you know, physical in the world and, and, and even physical in your body, right? Because the cool thing about your body is, and just the mind boggling thing about your body is that it directly uh, reacts to virtue like like for example playing the piano your body will change itself and your muscle tissue will change itself 
as you learn how to play a piano and as you practice that virtue and, and it's the same with any practice of virtue, like your body is going to react to you, uh, to doing that. And, and it's like, man, how do we even begin to understand the, the well, depth, and, and the Stoics, know? the Stoics would say it's because your soul permeates the body. Mm. And as a cognitive psychologist, levering, leveraging off of that, um, speculative science, but it's like, yes, because your, your peripheral nervous system, which is part of your nervous system, which is part of your soul by definition, right? It's like, there's more energy. You can see probably that there's warmer areas in the muscle. You're more relaxed. You move faster. There's certain neural activity happening and yeah, yeah, yeah. We can break it all down into boring little things and squeeze the soul back out of it mm. but uh it's it's a lot more poetic and it's a lot more powerful if you think about these in terms of your soul and your connectedness to the uh, to the larger consciousness out there mm. yeah yeah i agree and i like i like the the poetic nature of of these things i, I think it i think it helps to <laughs> to to be willing to explore these ideas and to be willing to see just how incredible everything is and how fortunate you are you know to to be able to experience this sort of stuff and to be able to grow you know as a human being yeah. sorry and, you want to and and so what i observe is that once you get past the life hack stage or the broicism stage to make you you know a mean yes. guy who, doesn't care about what happens in the world and you know like god i'm your control you you see people all of a sudden mixing and you did it a while ago mixing taoism or buddhism or um these things into their stoicism where you say why did you guys do that right so you sit there and you see this i meditate and i go to buddhist retreats and i have a little whatever temple bell and it's like don't you know that all of that is already in stoicism you you don't need to go to india china taiwan wherever to to grab this if if you just unlocked it in stoicism but for some reason there is a aversion to do there's a fear a because it's still too close to rome or i don't know what it is but it has always struck me as odd that people do have this sense of awe and do have this sense to go spiritually further but then mm. they kind of they, they keep their bag of little life hacks and then they move over to buddhism mm. which which in the end is not compatible right because mm. buddhist and I'm not claiming to be an expert at that, but, you know, it, you, you want to lose the self, you want to be one with the all, you want to dissolve. That's very different from what stoic meditation is. So you take something and you understand it and you go into it and you, you know, move your rational powers at it. And when you meditate or contemplate it, you contemplate the very thing. You don't lose yourself. Um mm. So that's, that's something that I'm still wrestling with on this either esoteric or spiritual path, why people are afraid to grasp the, the stoic theology. 
You know, mm. even once we're past the that God is not an old man on a throne, um, they still would rather go to Taoism or, or the shamanism or whatever it is. But for Christ's sake, let's not touch the Stoic theology. Maybe because it's called theology and that reminds you of divinity school at Harvard or something. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I, seriously, Dirk, I have found so much fascinating, um, so much value in diving deeper into Stoic theology and, and just theology in general. I mean, I would encourage everybody to, to really consider how cool it is that there is like a study of, of like, what is the original source and, and what is, what is all of this, you know, and conceptually as well. Like you don't, you don't have like we have imaginations and we we're allowed to go beyond the bounds of the physical things that we think we know, you know, we're allowed to do that. And that's so much fun to do because when you start to think about these things, man, you can go so deep and it, it will just blow your mind if you're willing to pass that boundary of, you know, now we're leaving the walls of this city that is only materialistic. You know, we we're going into that chaos, but it's fun to do that. But Dirk, yeah. you know, th- this has been so much fun and, and, and seriously, I want to talk to you many, many more times. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to put some links in the show notes to where people can go to the, uh, the, the Stoic Academy. You said it was the college of Stoic philosophers. College of, that's it. College of Stoic philosophers. Yeah. yeah. Just if you um, Google it, you'll be right at the front door. Yeah. I love it. So thank you so much for being <laughs> here and we'll have you back on many more times. Thanks for having me. It's been a very pleasant discussion. All the best to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, then you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching, based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you next time.